Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Robert Yeager and the Tao Foundation. A lot of therapists are able to help anyone with anything, really, but some therapists have a more focused clientele, like people who are on death row. People kind of reflect on their lives and think back to times that had nothing to do with the crime for which they're incarcerated. And what's it like being a therapist for people who are gifted? Just letting people, you know, know that there are characteristics of them that you love about them that have nothing to do with what they can achieve. And what kind of problems do people have when they are super rich? Are the people in your life in your life because they love you? Or is it because you always pick up the check? Um, So there is that sense of I'm not loved for who I am. I'm loved for who I have, what I have. And that can isolate us from other people. And there's a lack of trust. I'm Kyone Wolf here from Audacious Therapists, right after the news. From Connecticut Public Radio in Hartford, this is Audacious. I'm Kyone Wolf. When I think about a therapist, I think about my therapist, Nicole. She doesn't specialize in radio hosts, although... After being in public radio for 15 years, I can say with confidence that there would be a strong market for therapists specializing in public radio hosts, me included, but she's the kind of therapist you get, well, if you're lucky, and if you're someone with some stuff you need help working through. Whether you're a single mom trying to keep her head above water or you're a 20-year-old widower, she helps everybody. But today I want to introduce you to three therapists who do have a certain kind of clientele. Later, you'll hear from a woman who works with so-called gifted people and their families. And you'll meet a man who works with people living on death row. But what got us thinking about this whole show was this article in The Guardian by Clay Cockrell. It was titled, I'm a therapist to the super rich. They are as miserable as succession makes out. And when he says that he works with the super rich... It means that his clients are categorized as ultra-high-net-worth individuals. They have a net worth of $30 million or more. In the U.S., there are only around 100,000 people who are that rich. For a measly $600 an hour, and I don't even want to know how quickly his clients earn $600 an hour every, like, eighth of a second or what, he'll join his client for a walk through Central Park. He says that walking side by side lets people open up. I explained it once to someone saying, you know, there there are shower people and bath people. And I I never understood the bath people because you're just sitting in your own filth. Um, (laughs) And that's that's the way it feels sometimes when you're in a session, you're just sitting in the gunk. And and there is this kind of metaphorical moving through it as you walk. So I, I got the domain name Walk and Talk. And started, you know, telling people about it, offering it to other clients, and then it just kind of became a life of its own. Now, I bet that when you think of these super rich people, you may have a hard time finding the kind of reflexive compassion that you'd probably have for that 20-year-old widower or that single mom, that their wealth-related problems are the epitome of first-world problems. 
And we'll get to that. But I wanted to know first, what are some of the problems his clients are trying to work through? Well, I've I've noticed that there are uh, two buckets that people fall into. Uh, People who were raised with money. Uh, They went to private schools. They are part of that world. They know the vocabulary. They know the culture. and, And it has its own set of issues, right? And then there are those that made their own money, won the lottery, uh, built up a business and sold it. And so they're a little fish out of water uh, because they don't know that world. They don't know how to protect themselves and the dangers within it. And both of those populations come to the table with some similarities and also some differences. Some of the the similarities is there are a lot of, uh, there's a lot of isolation. There's a lack of ability to relate to other people uh, that don't have these resources. And there's a lot of guilt. Uh, there's a lot of shame. Uh, you know, how do you talk about your weekend when you flew to Paris for uh, this great restaurant and somebody else just was, you know, fixing, you know, stuff around the house? So it's 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 like they, they want to keep this private. And, and there's a I always say there's a fine line between private and secret. Secret is is dirty. It's shameful. And private is is clean. It's it's appropriate. And when we come to our bank accounts, they're private. But there's a lot of people that go into the world of, of secret. There's a lot of like it feels dirty to talk about money. And you're worried, what are people going to think about me? And then there's issue of uh, trust. You know, when you have to look around and wonder, are the people in your life in your life because they love you, because they support you, or is it because you always pick up the check? Or you're paying for their kids to go to college, or you know that you can open up doors to them because of your fame or because of your money. Um, so there is that sense of I'm not loved for who I am; I'm loved for who I have, what I have, and that can isolate us from other people. And there's a lack of trust. Um, there's issues of, and I can go on and on. You stop me when you want to, but there are, are issues of uh, a lack of purpose because, you know, you and I, we get up in the morning and we do our jobs because we have to pay our rent or our mortgage. When all of your needs are met, why get out of bed? Why do anything? Why start something? Why risk anything? Because all of your needs are met. So there's a degree of lack of ambition. Um, there's a lot of concern about how do you raise a child in a moneyed environment without them becoming incredibly entitled and spoiled? And how do you develop character with them? Because um, I see people who say, I don't want my kid to struggle like I did. But you know, your struggles develop character, develop your success, develop your idea of, of value and money. And when everything is handed to your kid because you don't want them to struggle and that's that's a natural parental impulse then that child becomes um you know has poor self-esteem and there's a weakness and there's a fragility to them because they've never had to fight for what they wanted so those are just some of the off the top of my head <laughs> would you say that it's an oversimplification to say mo money mo problems right <laughs> like i mean is that is that accurate would you say like would you want these problems you clay you know i had to work through my own money issues and still work through them uh because you know that that first client they're walking through and 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 talking about uh 
problems with their yacht and problems with their staff. And I'm going, oh, I want those problems. But n- n- no, I, I, I don't want it. It, it is true. Uh, the more money you have, uh, the at least different problems that you're going to have than everyone else, which of course then further isolates you. And then there's this sense of, I shouldn't have these problems, right? So therefore they're not seeking help because there's this sense of, they, they, these are silly problems to have, but they're, they're real problems to have. And uh, I told somebody once that if you have an enemy, like a, a nemesis in the world, buy them a lottery ticket because on the off chance that they win, it will ruin their lives. Yeah, I think that, that, that money is problematic and too much of it can be a problem. And I'm not advocating to anyone that you should give your money away, but that there are ways to uh, to find purpose. And first you have to acknowledge that uh, too much money can be toxic to yourself and to other people. Have you seen this study where they, they looked at um, drivers and their degree of empathy, their degree of I'm going to yield to someone, someone's in the, at, the, at the, the walkway and I'm going to stop for them. And drivers of uh, like Chevys and Fords and, and Toyotas, uh, they're kinder. They're, they have this ability to empathize with the pedestrian. And drivers of the Mercedes and the Cadillacs and the higher end cars. You don't even need to finish this sentence. Right? They are going to run right through. There is a lack of empathy uh, that we're seeing. So, So there is a toxicity that comes with money that I think should be recognized. I have heard of this magic number, $75,000 a year in terms of income, that if you make 75K a year, you're more likely to feel kind of um, a sense of balance. And I'm sure this number changes depending on if you're in Manhattan versus Mississippi. (laughs) But, you know, the idea is that 75K, you have enough to feel secure. What do you think about that number, even that idea that there is a price in a sense for the best likelihood of your own mental health when it comes to money? I've heard that number too. And and I think that when you break it down, what the study shows is that when you double your income, like going from 30,000 to 60,000, you're going to double your happiness. You, you just are. You're going to have, you're going to be able to take a vacation. You're not going to have to worry about, you know, medical care and all that kind of stuff to, to a certain degree, right? Not as much as when you were making the 30K. But then once you hit 75, that percentage of increase stops being as big. So going from 75 to 150 is not going to be doubling your happiness and your safety and your security. Um, It just, it might go up 10% or 20%. And then it starts getting smaller and smaller, the more money you make. So the incremental increase in percentage wise of your happiness begins to slow down when you start. And so, and again, of course, it's going to depend on Mississippi versus Manhattan, But once I think what it shows is that once your basic needs are met, there is a a degree of happiness that then you're not going to increase percentage wise more with more money. You were talking earlier about the lottery that if you have a nemesis, you should buy them a lotto ticket. Um, <laughs> the day after I got a divorce, I bought a lotto ticket just because I thought that'd make a good story. I didn't yeah. win, but maybe I maybe I actually did myself a favor by not winning. Ah. Yeah, but <laughs> since I don't have old money in my life, I think the only time I would ever 
have the kind of problems that some of your clients have is by if I won big in the lottery. And in Connecticut, you can't win the lottery anonymously. Uh, so if I say won um, $100 million tomorrow yeah. and called you up for a, a walk in Central Park, what would be some things you would tell me in our first session? That is a great question. Okay. <laughs> if you could, and obviously in Connecticut, you, you can't, but if you can keep this private, do it. Please keep it private. Understand that the most important thing here is for you to get comfortable with your new lifestyle. Uh, there's nothing to be shameful or embarrassed. Uh, anybody else could have done it, but you did it. It was random. So accepting your, your, your bank account for what it is, is a big part of that journey. Understanding then, too, that other people are going to have to go through their own process of accepting that. And you can't do anything really to help them along that. And they're going to, you're going to get jealousy, you're going to get anger, you're going to get envy, and a lot of stuff is going to be coming toward you. But when you understand that's not really having anything to do with you, it has to do with other people and their journey to understanding your, your family, your friends, your employer, they're going to have to come to terms with that. And letting go of, of trying to control that is important. Next, it's about boundaries. You deciding what you're going to do with this money. And, and people are going to come, quite frankly, they're going to come and ask you for money. They're going to ask you to give them money. And you have to make a choice of what do you want to do with that? Because once you give someone money, it's going to change the dynamic of that relationship forever. Power dynamic is just going to change. So making those decisions and kind of a, a roadmap of what you're going to do and what you're not going to do and hold firm to those. You may want to take a, a chunk of money saying, here, mom and dad, here's a million dollars. Do with it what you want. I've seen people do that. And then the rest is over here. Am I going to work? Am I not going to work? Because uh, work gives us purpose, gives us meaning, has us interact with the world. Even though you don't have to, I encourage you to do something because sitting around is uh, a formula for depression. Um, talking with your friends, you know, does this mean that you will always pick up the check? Let's decide now. It's and, and here's the thing. It's hard to talk about money and you would be so surprised of how many billionaires, uh, children of billionaires, they just don't talk about it. Uh, these kids are going, we never talked about the money. We never, you know, planned anything out. We never talked about how it's a complicating factor. It's hard to talk about money if you're making 50K or if you're making 50 million, it's hard to talk about. So it's important to do it anyway. When I think about billionaires, I think about how some people say billionaires shouldn't exist. What do you think about that? Just considering, I mean, you see more of it than than we do in this sense. So in, in that sense, it's like billionaires shouldn't exist because it's unethical. What do you need with all that money? But you also see it as how toxic it can be to a human being. So I wonder maybe if you agree with that even more than the average bear or maybe if it's different for you. That's a hard one because, <laughs> you know, I've, I've gotten to know these people. I am. Uh, they are incredibly passionate and beautiful and wonderful people with their own struggles. So to say they shouldn't exist is, is hard. 
but I am cognizant of the inequality and uh, the damage it does to them and the damage it does to us, the, the non 1%. Um, there, there's a toxicity when there's so much imbalance on both ends. Um, so I, I, I can't say that they, they shouldn't exist. Uh, some of these people have worked very, very hard, have been lucky sometimes, but they have um, taken advantage of what they've been dealt and found incredible success. And they have quite frankly earned it. And, and I acknowledge that not always, but many times, but there is, um, there's a set of problems that come along with that inequality to society. And I don't have the answers I, I try to stay in my lane. That's not, that's not where, you know, leave that to the politicians and the tax people. And I'm, I'm working with the people who are in it now. This next question, I feel a little bit uncomfortable asking for myself. Um, I have a few friends. They are not 1% or anywhere close to it, but they're doing really, really well in their businesses. And they have been really generous with me, like significantly generous with me personally. And, and it's amazing and, and they're the, that they're the kind of people who work hard for it, have accomplished so much, and they want to share it. It's just part of their DNA. And I know how to say thank you with my whole heart. And I know, you know, how to maintain our friendship regardless of what they ever try to do for me. But it feels weird to ask this, but how do I make sure that my more financially successful and very generous friends are, how do I make sure that they know that they're loved not for what they give to me, but for who they are? You know what I mean? Like they keep doing yeah. the sweet stuff with their resources and I keep accepting and I don't want, I just want them to know that they could, they could have anything in their bank account and I would love them just the same. Like what, what can I do or not do? Have you told them that? <sighs> no. No. <laughs> you should. <laughs> just that. It's, it's about, uh, you know, talking solves just about every problem out there. And when you go to them in a very vulnerable and authentic way, just as you were right in that moment, uh, they're going to accept that. In fact, I would argue they need that. They need it a lot. Acknowledgement, appreciation, gratitude, all of that is important. And uh, that's the, the first step. And the second step, I think, is, is, is the, what I phrase, we good. Um, just, hey, we good. You know, I know I acknowledge this thing you've given me is... Are we okay? Are you okay with that? Because I'm okay with accepting it, although I acknowledge it, it's kind of hard sometimes. But when you talk about things in a really authentic and vulnerable way, people are going to sense that and they, uh, they need it. So I would say just what you said right there, go to them and say that. <laughs> so tell them to tune into Audacious on Saturday yes. morning at 10. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Now, um, we touched on this a little bit earlier, but... So if you were suddenly offered an enormous sum of money and you were the 1% of the 1%, would you take it? Yes, of course <laughs> I would. <laughs> that's, that's the insidious part, right? That's the horrible thing is knowing that this is going to be and maybe i'm better suited than most because I've, I've worked in this world for so long so i know some of the the pitfalls 
but there's a lot of upside here. That's why I, I've got these comments online of just tell them to give it away, solve all their problems. Nobody's going to do that, even, even though it would solve a lot of these problems, but then you'd get some different problems. So yes, I, I would, but I would, I would give a lot of it away. But yeah, I'd accept it. <laughs> Well, my final question is, you know, you're a therapist, you know, it's hard to sit with people in pain and you make a job out of putting yourself in that line of fire, so to speak. And so I wonder if anybody ever really asks you, how are you? <laughs> I'm pretty good today. <laughs> Not always, but you caught me on a good day. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Clay Cockrell. Thanks so much for talking with me. Thank you so much. This was fun. When we get back, a therapist for gifted people on what it was like for her growing up gifted. I just felt a lot of pressure. And then I also, it's like this, like almost grandiosity at times, also with intense self-criticism and insecurity. Plus what it's like when your clients are on death row. I'm Kyone Wolf. This is Audacious. Stay with me. This is Audacious. I'm Kyone Wolf. Today, audacious therapists, people who specialize in helping a focused set of clientele. Later, you'll hear from a forensic psychologist whose clients are on death row. But right now, I want you to meet Eileen Kelleher. She's based in Chicago, and she works with gifted and twice exceptional kids, adults, and their families. She says giftedness is often defined as people who have above average abilities in certain intellectual realms. Some may excel in school, some may not. Some may connect well socially, some may not. And twice exceptional, or 2E, she says that's when you have a strong ability in one area, but you struggle in another area, like having high math abilities, but also having ADHD or autism. So people often need support in both of these areas. And, you know, even being called gifted brings with it a lot of pressure, which she knows a lot about. When I was growing up, I was told I was smart and I was good at standardized tests. And while that made me feel really confident in some areas, it also made me feel like if I made a mistake, I was a failure or that I had to prove how smart I was to other people, that I had to I had this pressure to be some kind of like prolific genius or something, because like as a kid, you have no clue what people are talking about. You're just like, okay. Or what's normal. Right. Yeah. Tell me about it. Cause a lot of this stuff that gets put on gifted kids. And when I talk about working with perfectionism as well, are symptomatic of society at large. Right. So I just felt a lot of pressure. And then I also while also it's like this, like almost grandiosity at times compared, like also with intense self-criticism and insecurity. I also dealt with anxiety and depression. And so when I was younger, I luckily I did get help through therapy pretty young. And I think that that really, um, changed the course of my life and also just continuing to ask for help as I got older, um, 
was pivotal for me. And so I want to be able to help other kids with the things that, you know, were beneficial for me, but also new things that I learn as, you know, a professional. And so, but I think that the reason I kind of found that I liked working with this population is I was doing some writing about clients I enjoyed working with. And like, one of the things I noticed was that they had these like abilities that people praised them for, but at the same time had a lot of struggles with like intense emotions and, you know, just some of the mental health concerns that I mentioned. And I loved working with them because it was like, we could connect and then I could see them get better. Like that was just, that's, that's one of the, my favorite things to see. And so, um, that's also really healing for myself as well. And so that's, that's kind of what I mean in terms of connecting with my clients or them knowing, feeling like I get it is just having that experience growing up. I, I'm not someone who I don't consider myself to be like, there's, don't get me started. There's, there's all these different terms, like profoundly gifted and things like that, which is a real thing, but like, I don't consider myself to be more especially skilled than anyone else. It's just, we all have different areas, like you said in the beginning where we have strengths. And so, um, but I do think the way that people are treated who have strengths that our society values has an effect on them. And I think that there is some sensitivity and intensity aspects of like the neurodiverse population that has specific needs. For those of us who don't really fall into the category of people you're helping, you know, yes, we're all gifted and all that stuff that we've been talking about. But for those of us who don't fall quite into that category, but we know somebody who may, and where we get a sense that there's something, there's something really different um, and unique about this person. And they have this special ability or the special kind of intelligence. What can I do to make sure that I am helpful and that I'm respectful and that I'm, you know, not making any mistakes or making their life more difficult. Like what are some common ways that people mess up around the people you help? Yeah. I think, um, only praising them for their smarts or their abilities. I think that's the main, like one of the main things that people who are gifted struggle with is thinking that they won't be accepted or loved if they're, if they don't fit into this label or the expectations of the label. So just letting people, you know, know that there are characteristics of them that you love about them that have nothing to do with what they can achieve or anything like that. When someone does express their feelings or share something they've been thinking, even if you're like, whoa, that's out there, or like, don't really understand where they're coming from, just kind of listening to them and saying like, thank you for sharing that with me, or I appreciate you kind of, you know, letting yourself be seen or being honest or something like that so that they feel more comfortable expressing the parts of themselves that they think are wrong. A lot of, a lot of people who are gifted or twice exceptional or neurodiverse think there's something like wrong with them. And so being able to be kind of quirky and different and be still accepted, which I think a lot of people still can be if they find the right people. So yeah, I think validating them. Yeah. I mean, if you feel so inclined, like asking them about what 
their interests are and like trying at least once, you know, maybe to engage with them, like maybe they try to do something that you like to do with you and you try to do something they like to do together so that, um, I don't know, I think it's just kind of trying to meet, meet people halfway and, um, share your lives with each other, even though you may not wholly understand each everything about each other, like, um, that there's always, you know, a bridge that can be crossed, letting them know that their value is not all in how smart they are, like praising them for other things, um, validating them, and then trying out some of their interests with them. Another important point Eileen wanted to make was that we often underestimate how isolated parents of gifted and twice exceptional kids feel. There's sensory sensitivity. So kids who are gifted often have more sensory issues. There's emotional intensity. So they may have stronger emotions than like other kids. Like there's all these quirks and different things that come up in the lives of gifted and twice exceptional families that are just different and that they need that support around. And so, or like their kid can read three grades ahead and are super bored. And so they start causing trouble in the classroom. Like, so um, I think that those parents need a lot of support. And I think it's important for those parents to know that there are like gifted support communities that they can look up online and be a part of and kind of that they don't have to do this alone. Cause so many people think that they're kind of like the only ones having to deal with this. And that's not true. And it's also really, really hard as a parent, because as much as you love and accept your child, it's like, you still have to function within a society that has certain norms. And so it's like, how do you do both in a way that um, honors your needs as well as your child's needs, as well as your family's needs. So it's a lot, it's a lot of work. So I think just having, letting parents know that there is support available out there. Eileen Kelleher, thanks for talking with me. Thank you so much. I appreciate you having me. After the break. I think what I've learned is to shift my thinking from what the heck is wrong with this person to what the heck happened to this person. Life as a forensic psychologist whose clients are on death row. I'm Kyone Wolf. This is Audacious. Be right back. This is Audacious. I'm Kyone Wolf. Today we're meeting people who are therapists for a particular kind of clientele. So what's it like trying to understand, evaluate, and help people who are on death row? Robin Timmy is a forensic psychologist based out of Chester County, Pennsylvania. He says he's called to work anywhere that mental health intersects with the justice system. He's called in when someone who just got arrested needs to be psychologically evaluated or when competency to stand trial is in question. And he evaluates people to help determine if their mental condition suggests that they should get life without the possibility of parole or if they are eligible to be sentenced to death. I asked Dr. Timmy to talk about the first time he worked with someone on death row. So people who are on death row and who are experiencing incarceration are very interestingly, a quiet population in the prison. Uh, a lot of people have uh, this mythology 
that uh, these folks are kind of chronically dangerous, chronically violent, and maybe the loudest folks in a prison setting, but it's actually exactly the opposite. The reason is that they're not too unlike those folks who are not on death row and are in prison uh, in terms of their social determinants of health, in terms of the factors that brought them to prison in the first place. And what's interesting about the population is that they're all working on appeals. So when you get sentenced to death, it's often decades before that sentence is carried out. And during that time, there's appeal after appeal, and people are really trying to be on their best behaviors. And so just like everybody else who's incarcerated in the United States, for the last 45 years, people on death row have been legally entitled to constitutionally adequate care while they are incarcerated. And so we sort of start from there. So if there is somebody on death row who has depression, if there's somebody who has anxiety, if there's somebody who has schizophrenia, they're entitled to the same services that any other prisoner is, which are really the same services that you and I are entitled to at the end of the day. And so my first experiences with those on death row when I was uh, chief psychologist in a large department of correction um, were, were very minor. They would be responding to um, sick calls, we call them, or requests for help. And so on the clinical side of things, it actually has not been all that interesting in my career. Now, on the evaluation side of things, it's a totally different story. In the last 20 years, we've decided as a country, the Supreme Court really, in some landmark cases, has decided that we're going to narrow the scope for whom we apply our most severe penalties in this country. And so you will not find people on death row today who have an intellectual disability. They are no longer allowed to be put to death. And so when you take that population, the role of a forensic psychologist becomes absolutely critical because I will often get called to come into a facility and evaluate somebody to see if they have an intellectual disability. And if they do, if the court determines that they do, their death sentence will be converted to a life sentence without the possibility of parole. So in a sense, you are part of making life and death decisions. You. Yes, that, that's correct. And these days, I do a lot of other work, and uh, I, I'm very selective in my cases. And so the death penalty cases that I work on today are called capital habeas cases. And these are cases where somebody has exhausted all of their appeals and now has a date with the needle, so to speak. And so those moments are incredibly powerful and meaningful and some of the most interesting human interactions that you find anywhere. People are filled with remorse. They are resigned to death often. And they've seen appeal after appeal fail for 30 years sometimes. And so you're sitting there kind of having this clinical interaction, this evaluation, you're testing IQ, you're testing adaptive functioning, you're doing these very clinical things. And then I'm always closing my computer at the end and just saying, what's it like to be here? And what do you hear? People kind of reflect on their lives and think back to times that had nothing to do with the crime for which they're incarcerated. They will talk to me about teachers that they respected uh, and felt terrible for acting out in their classrooms. Things that to you and me, when you're facing existential crises, more, your actual mortality would seem so minimal, become very major moments in these folks' lives. And it's almost as if they can see their trajectory from childhood through those social determinants of health, 
through those adverse childhood experiences that we now know are so predictive of outcomes later in life that include medical, mental health, and behavioral problems that lead up to incarceration. So they're very reflective and also very resigned and sad. When we were talking about the show and and who we wanted to hear from, uh, there's so, hmm, how do I put this? There's so many opinions about people who've hurt other people, you know? And so I bet in the before times when you would get to know somebody on a whim, uh, they may not have a lot of compassion for people on death row. They may not think they really deserve any sort of special attention beyond what they're entitled to um, legally. When you tell people what you do, um, this part of what you do, and they respond with perhaps a dismissive attitude like, let them rot, who cares? How do you respond? I definitely hear that a lot. Uh, And I think what I've learned most importantly is to shift my thinking from what the heck is wrong with this person to what the heck happened to this person. And that's sort of a trauma-informed lens that we talk about today in, in the field. And when you start to ask that question, what happened to this person to lead them to this place, you start to see these incredible commonalities. And rather than excusing behavior, you start to explain behavior. And that's really important in what I do every day. We know that people who end up on death row and people who end up in prison are far more likely to have chronic medical illnesses, to come from places that have no access to healthcare or education or nutrition. All of these things that we know are predictive of outcomes later in life. They're far more likely to hold minority status, Black, Indigenous, people of color, uh, to be vulnerable in marginalized populations in so many other ways. And so we can start to understand things like the predictive power of a zip code, for example, in determining later outcomes in life. And so you start to sort of humanize the experience in a population that's very easy to other. It's very easy to say, well, that's them and I'm me. And it can be a very dangerous relationship when that starts to occur. But I find that when I can start to talk to people about the commonalities in this population, people start to think, oh God, I I never had any idea that it was that complicated. It seems to me that somebody on death row had a random victim, kicked in the door, did something heinous, extremely violent, aggravating circumstances. And sometimes that's the case, but usually it's much, much more complicated than that. And we have a tendency as human beings to look at things in terms of all and none and black and white and to resign ourselves to our positions and to other people like that. And is that sort of the way that you've trained yourself? Because, you know, before you see them, you must know what they've done. You must, of course, read up on the story and the context. And you must keep in mind the the family and the survivors. And is that how you keep yourself balanced? Or is there anything else to it for you? Well, it's very hard to keep yourself balanced, and it's a very specific niche of my work that I try to regulate in terms of how many cases I take. Um, I had a great uh, mentor once observe that I bear witness to a tremendous amount of human suffering. And um, you can imagine that in a lot of different ways in this context. But the first thing is that the first time I meet somebody, I have not reviewed what, what they did. I really want to bring fresh eyes. 
And so I often will plan for at least two visits with somebody. And the first one, I might know just the basics, but I haven't read police reports. I haven't seen body-worn cameras. I haven't looked at crime scene footage. These are things that, that forensic psychologists are exposed to. And I'll just get to know the person. I might spend eight hours just speaking with them, uh, just getting their history. I might spend the first hour just talking about my role in their case and why I'm here, the difference between a therapist and an evaluator, how I might be used in the future, things like that. And then spend several hours just building rapport, getting them to talk to me about their background, their childhood, you know, joining with them. And then usually in between the first and the second is when I'll do more of the forensic analysis. I'll really look at all of those documents that are in what we call discovery, where the state has all their evidence and they're obligated to turn it over to the defense. That'll usually get provided to me. And so the second visit I'll come in, and now we've got a little bit of a relationship. And this is where we sort of do a deeper dive. Uh, and we really dismantle kind of what happened. What was the incident? What was the context? And then I usually try to kind of put people back together at the end of that second session, because this can be a very re-traumatizing event for folks. And so they really deserve the opportunity to kind of um, maybe experience some positive affect, maybe to think about their future and to get out of this hopelessness and think more about optimism sometimes. And so I'll ask them questions like, you know, if your sentence was commuted to a life sentence, what would you do with the time that you would have left? And let them tell me about their dreams and things like that and kind of put people back together. So there's a very thoughtful process that goes into this. And I'm very sensitive to what it must be like to sit on the other side of that table. Do they typically, and I, I, I hesitate to use the word typically because what's typical in this context, although do they typically open up to you or are they hard to get to, or is that just, or do they open up because you're so good at what you do? What kind of reactions do you normally see from people in this population? Everybody is very different. Very, very different. Uh, it's what I love about my job is that you really get to study what makes people so different. Uh, I'm preparing for two cases right now where I'll be traveling uh, to Ohio to do two capital habeas cases. And one of them, uh, they're very nervous that uh, he may be, um, let's say, less than truthful uh, and may be exaggerating symptoms, uh, may be trying to appear more impaired than the clinical picture may actually warrant. That's very common in forensic psychology. One of the things we are always doing is not just assessing what somebody is telling us, but also how they are telling us, what we call response style. Are they exaggerating, malingering? And so that's something that we're always addressing in our reports and, and how do we rule that out? And then the other side of the, the coin is uh, the, the other defendant I'm going to see, um, they're very concerned that he's not going to talk to me at all, uh, that he may be resigned to death. Uh, he may... Um, have sort of given up hope and uh, truly believes that this is part of God's plan. Religiosity is a very big component uh, of folks in these situations. Um, and, and in prison in general, uh, you, you see a lot of um, religious programs and um, people who sort of find God in various ways. And um, this is somebody who they're concerned might have decided that this is part of God's plan and may just dismiss me. And so in a situation like that, it's actually a lot harder. Uh, in my opinion, when they won't open up to me for uh, uh, what might be a very valid reason in their, in their mind. The reason it's harder is that it forces me to, to work a lot harder, to build rapport, to gain their trust. And maybe I have to go to the facility three, four, five times instead of just two. 
uh, before they start to trust that um, they should open up and talk to me. The former example was actually a lot easier because uh, I can explain to them over and over that if you lie to me, if you exaggerate, uh, we will know and it will just not help you and it will be a big waste of time and money. And you give them that chance and then it's up to them. Uh, whereas in, in the latter example, uh, it can be much more challenging. And meanwhile, we all know what the consequences of it are. So what do you, Robin Timmy, think about the death penalty personally? You know, as forensic psychologists, we're always kind of prepared that that question will come, but I'll tell you that it's never actually come to me in a public forum. I have not been asked that on the stand. And I am a huge believer in how and why we do things being at least as important as what we do in life. And so when I think about the interests of justice and why we carry out various punishments, I think about things like deterrence. What's the deterrent value of something? What is the retributive component to this? Are we trying to say an eye for an eye here? What is the incapacitation role here? Are we trying to lock somebody up, for example, so they can't hurt other people? And then there's always a rehabilitative ideal. And so we know from research over the last few decades that deterrence is really not a component of this. People don't refrain from homicide because of the threat of a possible death penalty. We certainly know it's not a rehabilitative ideal. That's sort of out the window. It sort of is an ultimate incapacitation, right? This person will not kill again, will not commit another crime, except for the fact that they might sit on death row for 30 years. And so we really find ourselves, as we so often do in the American justice system, talking about a retributive ideal, that we are really about, uh, we created some social contract that thou shall not kill, and, uh, and you broke that contract, uh, and you have to pay the price, and we've determined that that price is death. It's your life. And I see it changing everywhere. Um, I have been deeply involved in systems as they abolish the death penalty locally, I've seen the narrowing of the scope over the last couple of decades as to whom we apply the death penalty. And I just think that Western civilization is really evolving to a place where we're thinking beyond retribution. And maybe maybe we're starting to actually ask what happened to somebody instead of what's wrong with them and realizing maybe why somebody is how they are uh, instead of just writing them off. How do you hope you'll feel about this work at the end of it? Um, this may sound like a bit of a cheesy story, but in my second year of graduate school, I worked in the Federal Correctional Institution in Fairton, New Jersey. And when you're a practicum student in a prison, you don't get to just walk around like you're an employee. And so I would wait in the lobby for 45 minutes, an hour, hour and a half. Prisons don't move very quickly. It's very hard to get from one place to another as a staff. And you probably didn't have a cell phone at that point, so you couldn't, you know, do Wordle. You still aren't allowed to bring them in. And uh, and so I would sit there and I would read the workman's compensation law and I would read, you know, the CPR instructions and all the other stuff that's on the walls of every workplace in America. Um, but I uh, above the door, the, they call a sally port, where you walk through two doors to get into the actual compound, was this beautiful piece of maple and into it, uh, an inmate, a person experiencing incarceration had carved or burned with a magnifying glass, 
the words, leave this place better than you found it. And for me, that spoke to me very deeply. At the time, I thought, huh, that's really admirable. I like that idea. I'm going to carry that with me as I go forward. And it wasn't for about 10 years, I don't think, until I realized what the person who made that was saying. That it, was, it was someone who was incarcerated, who was building a sign to hang outside, asking everybody to come in to make this place better. And the person who hung it up there was asking the same thing by hanging that sign. And so I've learned so much about what it's like to live and to work in these places. And by the way, people who work in these places uh, are substantially more likely to have all of the same maladies, including risk for suicide, as their inmate counterparts. And so it just means so much more to me now. And I'd like to look back and to be able to say that I left this facility better than I had found it, or I left this system better than I found it. And, and to say better, I mean, it just functions in a way that is more effective. It does what we want it to do. It rehabilitates people. It, it provides for humane spaces where people can heal. It's trauma-informed and people come out less likely to commit crimes in the future and more likely to have meaningful lives. And so I hope to look back and, and think about my career and impact in, in those terms. Well, Dr. Robin Timmy, thanks for all you do and thanks for talking with me. Thank you so much. Special thanks to Cherie Townsend from the International Association for Correctional and Forensic Psychology for connecting us with Dr. Timmy. Audacious is produced by me, Jessica Severin Martinez, and Katie Tolarski at Connecticut Public Radio in Hartford. Subscribe to Audacious, and you'll always get to hear the show a day early. You can hear them all at ctpublic.org slash audacious or wherever you get your podcasts. Send me your reactions and show ideas on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Wolf, And my email is cwolf at ctpublic.org. Thanks for listening. <laughs>